This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. We are learning tonight, um, the, this is the 11th part of our series on Mashiach. Uh, even though this technically could be, like, in sort of its own section. Last week, we did, uh, well, it was two weeks ago, we did on uh, the, the false, the fake Mashiach of JC. And we proved how that's, uh, you know, 100% not true. And today we're going to go a little bit on a different route, but on the same you know, on the same path, and that is the, the infamous false Mashiach, Shabtai Tzvi. So, out of all the, um, you know, the fake Mashiachs that existed over time, and there were many of them, uh, this was one of the most popular ones. And, you know, this, I would say, it was even more popular than JC, than Jesus. Because, uh, you know, with, in, regards to, in regards to Jesus, he was more of a, you know, to the Gentile world. But Shabtai Tzvi actually captured the Jewish world, and he captured a majority of it. So what we're going to discuss tonight is, number one, how did he do that? How was he able to fool so many people into believing that he was the Mashiach? Uh, one of the purposes of this, of this class is also to understand by looking at what he did, you could also sort of try to you know, understand what the real Mashiach is supposed to do. Sort of balance it out from looking at the, studying the negative and then figuring out the positive. So... Uh, this this Tzvi, he lived in um, in Izmir, Turkey, from the year 1626 to 1676. He, he lived 50 years, and um, you know, he's the, from since the beginning there were there were a few people, rabbis, that openly you know said that he's a false messiah. You know, don't listen to him. But there was a majority of people, majority of the people I'm talking about, the regular people that uh, that follow him. And there was also a percentage of the rabbis that also thought that he was the Mashiach. So he not only convinced. The regular people, which is more easier to convince, but he convinced the learned people as well. Not all of them, but, but he was able to convince them. So let's speak about a little bit about who he was, where does he come from. So his father was Mordechai Tzvi. He came from an Ashkenazi origin. And uh, at, at first he was a uh, poultry uh, merchant. So he used to sell, you know, like you know, all those different types of uh, meats of, of, you know, chicken or whatever it was. And eventually he became an uh, agent for the Dutch and English traders. And when the market, you know, rose over there, when the economic rise, he became extremely uh, wealthy. So he became wealthy and, and Shabtai Tzvi also had two other brothers that also became uh, very wealthy. His brother's names was Eliyahu and Yosef. They both became uh, wealthy merchants. Uh, they say Shabtai Tzvi was born on Shabbat, hence his name is Shabtai, from Shabbat, and that's where he got his name Shabbat. His followers also claim that he was born on the 9th of Av. When he was born on the 9th of Av, uh, why did they say that? Because there's a tradition that the Mashiach will be born on the 9th of Av. So, the, um, you know, and, and out of all of the people that opposed him, no one, not one person ever said he's an ignoramus. He was a very well-learned individual. He knew a lot about, not only the Torah, he knew a lot about Kabbalah. He actually delved a lot into Kabbalah, which is where, you know, partially he, he fell off. The, um, you know, according to one source that we have, he left yeshiva at the age of 15. Why did he leave? Because he felt that nobody could teach him anymore. He was on such a high level, he was so advanced in his studies, that nobody there was able to teach him anymore. At the age of 18, he was ordained a rabbi already. His rabbi was Rabbi um, Yosef Iskaba, uh, which we'll soon see later ended up putting him in Cherem, which means he excommunicated him by the things that he did. But Shabtai Tzvi in himself, he was more of a, a loner type of person. He was always by himself, didn't have any, uh, you know, much friends. He was a very good singer, uh, he was very charismatic, and he was also good looking. So those attributed, you know, a lot to the fact of that, you know, it's sort of, 
you know, convince people more. You know, there are certain people that you sort of expect to claim that there will be a fake Mashiach. They'll be like, okay, this guy goes and says, you know, by the way, I'm, you know, Mashiach, and, and you want to see my spaceship outside? You know, that sort of lines in the same sentence. You don't really blink twice. But uh, um, when you have someone who is well-versed in the Torah, who's a big Tamid Chacham, he knew a lot of the Kabbalah, of the, of the Gemara, of the Zohar. He knew a lot about all these things, and that person tells you that he's Mashiach. It starts makes you like, okay, you know, well, you know, you're sort of always on the defense, but sort of you know, bringing him more into it. On the top of that, that he was very charismatic. He was a good-looking person. He wasn't like a disheveled person. He was, uh, you know, how to sing very well. So it sort of made you sort, you know, lose your guard. And, and this is in a way that he was able to get a lot of um, followers as well. So. When he started learning Kabbalah, this is where he found his calling, when he started learning Kabbalah. And uh, he, left, he led a very uh, a lifestyle that um, ran away from anything materialistic pleasure. So he would fast for days on end. He would go and um, put himself in solitude for, for, for days as well also, and meditating and bring, you know, putting all the, the Kabbalot aspects into reality. The, uh, from, from what we read about Chapta Yitzvi, you could understand that he had sort of some sort of condition. And nowadays we will call that condition bipolar or manic depressive. Uh, the reason for that is that throughout his history, when it's documented, it's, he has periods of, of uh, manic, which is he has extreme euphoria, a lot of energy, nonstop, uh, um, you know, and he would be able to go like for days on end without sleeping. And not only that, he would be able to give a class, let's say a Shul Torah, and it will be on very complex topics for non-stop, for hours on end. So you get like, where does this guy get his energy from? How does this, you know, he had like a supernatural, uh, you know, energy with it. And then came the manic episode. The manic episode, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, the depression, uh, the depression episodes, which we, he would, you know, sort of be sulky and be by himself and, you know, keep to himself. So he had these like different bouts of, of, of energy that would come out. Now, when he had these manic uh, episodes, which means he was uh, very um, hyperactive, he would do something called strange act. We'll soon see Masim Zarim. It will be like something that they classified it. And of these things were like, he, he publicly violated Kashrut, publicly violated Shabbat laws. So, which even though, still with all this, he was still able to get followers, which is unbelievable, and we're going dis- to see how that happened. So, the, um, you know, between the years 1646 and 1650, he married his first wife. Uh, the, the marriage didn't last long. One of the reasons, what, well, probably the only reasons was that his, um, his father-in-law came over uh, to, you know, to him or to Bethany and said, listen, you know, you know, he's the, the, the husband, Shabtai he never touches his wife. He never comes close to his wife. And it turns out that he never consummated the marriage. So that ended up in a divorce. A short while after that, he married a second wife. And not surprisingly, the same thing happened. The father-in-law comes in and says he never consummated the marriage. And that ended also uh, with a divorce. Now, the year was uh, 1648. So it was a very unfortunate time for the Jewish people. It was 1648, 1649. It was a tach uh, v'tach that was known in the Jewish world. Um, in the, you know, it was known also as the Chemlonetsky uh, pogroms. Uh, this was done by, this was orchestrated by a person by the name of Bodan Chemlonetsky. And what happened was, just a little background of what this, uh, what this um, massacre, the pogroms, the uprising of, of, of this, was that during those years, the, Pol- the Poland, the Polish people, ruled over the Ukrainian people in the nearby areas. And every time that they would, you know, so they would obviously have their taxes, uh, pay tolls, all those things. And they would, at times, raise the taxes and tolls. Who would be the middleman between these two, I guess you could say, nations or countries? The Jewish people. 
the Jewish people who are the tax collectors, who are the administrators of the land, uh, of the, you know, of the in-between. Now, the, you know, the Ukrainians felt that they are being, you know, abused, and so much so that they went on the uprising, and they went and they completely wanted to take over the Ukrainian uh, rule. So what happened was, is that, who did they put most of their energy and frustration at? Was the middlemen, the Jews. I mean, they, they took care of a lot of other people, but they took care. And during this time, there was hundreds of thousands of Jews that died and lost their lives during this, uh, during this period. So, the, um, you know, every time after a tremendous destruction, there's always a time when they're like, you know, you're like, why did God do this towards his people? Like, if God loves his people, how could he do this to them? So, people generally, after these types of situations, what do they look for? They look for Mashiach. And this is, you know, this is what happened after, um, after the Holocaust. You, you, you hear, like, Holocaust survivors when they say, when they, when they found out that the Americans liberated the, the you know, the... The people in the Holocaust, wherever they were, at the concentration camps, the labor camps, they were very upset. Why were they upset? Because they were for sure waiting for Mashiach to come. They were like, for sure Mashiach is going to come. And what? It's just the Americans? It's just, you know, the people that are liberating us? So they, there, was, there was always a time when bad things happen, we look towards Mashiach. We look towards the, the wanting and the need to Mashiach, and, and rightfully so. So the... The, the same thing happened over here. After this, after this massacres of Tachvetat, the Jews were looking towards Mashiach. They needed a Mashiach. And Shabtai Tzvi also started thinking about it. He says, how could, this, how could God do this to his chosen nation? Kill hundreds of thousands of people, innocent people in cold blood? So he said, there must be Mashiachs around the corner. And very soon he decided that he was the Mashiach that he's going to become and he's going to save the, the Jewish uh, people, the Jewish nation. So at uh, roughly the age of 22, he started declaring that he is the true Mashiach, he's the savior of the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, to prove this claim, you know, he, he would do things that would only happen well after Mashiach comes. For example, that he started pronouncing God's name the way that it's written, not the way that it's supposed to be pronounced. And you're, not allowed, you're obviously not allowed to do that. There was, um, you know, so his, his rabbi started seeing his, his actually personal rabbi, who, you know, ordained him, if I'm not mistaken, saw this, and he was like, how could this, and he went and he excommunicated him, he put him in cherem, he, he said, you're, you're, you know, there's something off, and he, and he excommunicated him. That, you would think that would stop him. If your own rabbi went and tell you, you're doing something wrong, stop it, he doesn't listen, eventually he goes and he excommunicates you, and say, okay, fine, listen, maybe I was, uh, maybe I was wrong. Uh, but it didn't. He kept on going, and his strange acts, or ma'asim zarim, Kept on, kept on happening. He, uh, the reason also why he had, happened to get a lot of followers is because people, you know, um, he, he allowed to sin. If people wanted to sin, he said, no problem, now it's a tikkun. You know, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When, not when you justify something, but the same idea. When you're able to say, you know what, I'm allowed to do this because, uh, you know, it's a good thing. So he convinced, what? Not to repair, that's more like the tikkun, but more like uh, to make yourself feel better about doing something bad. We, everybody does it. You know, we, we all do it, uh, depending on the level. There are some people, I know people, unfortunately, that uh, they, you know, don't keep Shabbat. Why? Because, listen, you know, Shalom Bayit, Rabbi. Everything is more important than Shalom Bayit. No kashut, Shalom Bayit, you know. People, you know, let's say that are dating, and they're not Shomel Nigiyah, they don't, they, they, they touch opposite, you know, gender. Why? Listen, otherwise she's going to get upset, he's going to get upset, you know, this and that. So they convince themselves that it's a right thing. Meanwhile, it's 100% wrong. It's a justification. They justify it. So, the same thing over here. People wanted to sin. Shabtatiya was able to justify it. Don't worry, you're allowed to do that. It's a tikkun. Not only is it not an avera, not a sin, rather you're doing a big mitzvah, you're, you're, you're making tikkunim. So, he, uh, you know, and he did himself many things that were very, very strange. For example, he was, uh, he was in Yehud, he was in seclusion with unmarried women. He was also, um, you know, the, um, 
you know, the, the, his followers would actually pride themselves on forbidden relations, claiming that this is a tikkun for this and this is a tikkun for that. Uh, you know, other things that he would do is he would go into the into the middle into the ocean in the middle of the night and he would go swimming. And but he would have a minyan stay there and watch him for whatever reason that he thought that this was a biyatikun. He had that he had them uh, watch him. He one time thought he flew. He actually thought he flew and, uh, you know, levitated into the air. And when he, you know, when he came, I guess, down or, you know, he goes over to his people that was here. He's like, did you see me fly? So they said, no. He says, you know what? It's because you're not worthy. You're not purified enough. That's why you couldn't see me fly. So... He started doing, you know, a lot of these odd things. And one time he, when he was, uh, you know, he was swimming, he almost drowned. And he felt that through a miracle he was saved. And because of that, he, or, he ordained that day to be like a, a holiday, like Purim. And that day was the 16th of Kislev. And, uh, you know, a lot of his followers, not only that, they fasted like Purim a day beforehand, like Tani Testel. And then they made a feast on the, on the day that he was saved, which is the 16th of Kislev. So... Obviously, this led to a lot more rabbis intervening, seeing what he's doing, and they started excommunicating him. And after that didn't work, they actually banished him. They kicked him out. They kicked him out from the, um, you know, from the town that he was. So, the, um, if you think that would stop the strange acts from continuing, it didn't. It kept on going. In fact, one of the odd, more of the odd things that he did is he got married. But he didn't get married to a person. He got married to the Torah, with a, like everything, like the whole shebang. He got married to, a, to the Torah. Um, which is later when he signs his name, he used to sign the name Chatan Torah. Literally, because he felt he was the Chatan of the Torah. He literally felt like he married uh, the Torah. So, after you know, that also, he kept on getting kicked out from city to city. And not only that, he kept on getting excommunicated and getting kicked out. But with all this, he still was getting followers. People were still coming to him, and they were still um, you know, following him. He went on, even at one point, he, uh, like time lost all meaning. He uh, um, celebrated Sukkot. Pesach and Shavuot, all in one week. He's like, yalla, let's do a combino over here, let's do it, everything together, knock it out for the year. It's like, imagine, it, it literally think about it, be like, listen, I'm going to keep Shabbat for seven days, so I'll be good for like another seven weeks. You know, like that, that's the way that he was, uh, um, you know, that he was doing it. Now, what makes it even, what it makes it even more interesting is that when he started permitting things that are forbidden, he actually created a blessing for it. The blessing was, Matir Isurim. Matir is to, that permits Isurim, things that are forbidden. So now he made a new blessing that when you're doing something that was once forbidden by the Torah, sort of created a sort of a new Torah. So now it's, now it's permitted. Now it's uh, um, uh, mutal. Now it's permitted. So the, um, you know, and, and as he went, it's interesting because as he went from place to place, and not every place was like this because he did, a, you know, quite a, a little bit of traveling. He, when he first entered a place, he was more quiet. Not, and this is not across the board, but he was more quiet, more in that depression state. And uh, so he, this way, he, he got a lot of followers as well because people saw him. He knew a lot of Torah. He knew a lot of Kabbalah. He's sitting there learning day and night, nonstop. He's keeping them by himself. He's doing all the Yehudim, whatever that it is that he's doing. So he got people to follow him. But then, by the, eventually, when he started acting all the crazy stuff, people already, you know, dug in and they were, you know, not uh, overlooked it, so to speak, or gave reasons why it's okay. So there was a, a very wealthy man by the name of uh, Rafael Yosef Halabi. Um, that he was under the Ottoman government. He, uh, you know, besides being very wealthy, he was also very influential in the government, and he was, uh, you know, a very, very big, uh, um, you know, giver of charity. Uh, charity. He would, uh, at, at regular, besides supporting Tamidei Chachamim, Kabbalists, Talmudists, he supported all these people. Besides that, on a regular basis, thank you, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, better yet, he had about 50 of these Tamidei Chachamim dining at his table. On a daily basis, not on a, on a weekly thing. So he was very wealthy, gave a lot of tzedakah, 
Also, he did a lot of fasting himself. He did to abstain from all the, um, you know, from, from what you regular hear the wealthy people do. So, be, so you, you know, someone who is, you know, considered on like a righteous le- uh, level. Shabtai Tzi bef- befriended him. And when he befriended him, he was very, again, Shabtai Tzi was a very charismatic person. And, you know, so this Rafal Yosef, you know, Halabi, he actually became a supporter of Shabtai Tzi. And that also just boosted him up a lot, because he was a very influential Jew, and now he got, you know, his support. So, uh, at about 1663, Shabtai Tzvi moved, uh, moved to Jerusalem. And, um, and then again, he, he would continue his, his regular things, you know, he was, you know, learning all day and all night, keep, you know, keeping by himself, um, you know, he was also a very great, you know, singer, so he went down in front of the Amud, a lot of people came and listened to him. Uh, what was interesting that uh, besides, you know, he would literally sing Tehilim all night, and a beautiful voice, it ca- captured a lot of people. He um, also <coughs> happened to like Spanish love songs, uh, not Jewish uh, things, and he would sing them, and he would give deep mystical meanings to those uh, love songs. So t- talk about rationalizing. So, and besides gaining people that way, he would also, he wasn't like a, you know, mean guy. He was very nice. He gave, you know, candies to the children. And so everybody liked him. Everybody, so he was very likable. And uh, one time the, the, the community announced Israel in Yerushalayim, they needed money because the government that was ruling over them imposed heavy taxes, like, you know, everyone usually does in the Jewish people. So they didn't have the money to, to raise it, so they went over to him and they said, listen, can you go and raise money for us? We know that you have a connection with this Halabi, this, this very wealthy Jew. I believe he was, uh, he was in Cairo. Uh, can you go and raise money for him? So he said, fine, let me try it. And he goes and he takes on the mission and he goes and he travels to, uh, to Cairo. On the way, he, tri- he stops by Hebron and um, over there he starts davening by the, you know, by the, by the Avot. And he's, you know, da- he's davening with such, such zeal and he has, you know, like there's a group of people that were over there and he stayed up with them all night and they were discussing and learning and praying and all these things that he just... Convinced them also to follow him. He was like like picking up followers like a, like a, you know like flies. So as um, as he went uh, when he got to, to Cairo, he spoke to to Halabi and he got all the funds, everything that they needed. He got, which needless to say, when he gets back to Jerusalem, you know, to Jerusalem, his thing just went up to the roof. Now this guy basically just saved you know the the place from who knows what. So his you know um, his rating goes up and people start following him even more. Now, he was aware that, you know, he's doing things that are against the Torah, and he was, it bothered him. So, he heard about somebody, somebody from, from a place called Gaza. Now, we look at Gaza as a, you know, something that is only the Arabs have it, but actually Gaza was, a, you know, at this point in time, was a very populated Jewish community. So, uh, he heard about this guy, Nathan from Gaza, we'll call him. Uh, well, that was his name, that's what we're calling him that. But, um, so he, this, he was like, he was known as, as like a very, you know, person that was able to look inside, very a big Kabbalist. So, he decided that he's going to go visit him to see if he could figure out what's going on inside him. Why is he compelled to do these things? Why is he has these bouts of depression and all, all these different things that were going on inside him? He wants to know what's going on. So, out of all the people to go, he went to the worst person that he could go to. And this is Nathan of Gaza. We'll soon see why. So when he comes to Nathan of Gaza, this Nathan sees him and he says, something wrong, you need to repair? What are you talking about? You don't need to repair anything. You're the king, you're the Mashiach. He says, what do you need to repair? Everything that you're doing. And he went and he started convincing him that everything that he was doing was really a tikkun for this and that. He was basically giving him everything that he, uh, that he needed to continue his uh, Mashiach uh, drive. 
So Chapetier was also, he wasn't, he initially didn't really, you know, he was like, okay, that sounds a little bit too much. He didn't accept it. Uh, but they both needed to travel, so they traveled together. And when they traveled together, so they befriended each other and they were talking, Chapetier started opening up to him everything that happened to him in his, uh, in his life. And this Nathan of Gaza went and he started convincing and showing him, beginning him proofs from the Kabbalah, from all the deep sources, how everything that he did was really good. And everything that is happening is really a tikkunim. And he basically convinced him, you are right where you're going, continue what you're doing, you are the Mashiach. Now, if he was unsure beforehand, now forget about it. And now think about what it has. You have one, you know, famed Kabbalist who heals people, which was soon to speak about it. And you have Shaftai Tzvi, who was also a charismatic guy. Two people coming together saying that he's Mashiach. And he has this, you know, wealth of, of uh, followers. You start to believe it. And it starts to get out there. So let, let's a little, explain a little bit who this Nathan of Gaza was. Uh, this uh, Nathan was, uh, he was considered a, a rear prodigy. And uh, when he was young, he would, you know, in Yeshiva still, when the, before he was married, he would spend day and nights learning Torah non-stop. And he was one of those people that was able to concentrate for very long periods of time, have a strong focus, a big drive. So he, was, he would accomplish t- tremendous amounts of, of learning. One day, a very wealthy Jew from Gaza goes over to the, to the, to the, um, to the Beth Midrash, to the Yeshiva, and he goes over to the rabbi and says, Listen, I want, I'm a very wealthy person, and I want the best boy in the Yeshiva. So the rabbi said, no questions asked, this guy Nathan of Gaza. This is the guy Nathan, he wasn't of Gaza yet, he was just Nathan. This guy, he's the best boy. So he says, fine. He goes over, they call him over, he says, listen, would you agree to marry my daughter? Continue learning, you, one condition, you have to come to Gaza where I live, and then I will support you for the rest of your life, you can focus nonstop. This is every yeshiva bachar's dream, right? He says, what is there? Of course, I can sit and learn all day, I don't have to worry about learning. Where do I sign? So uh, they, waited, they made the shiduch, and he got married. And, um, you know, as, as uh, you know, when this uh, Nathan of, of Gaza, uh, I believe at the age of 20, he, he started, uh, you know, going into Kabbalah. And to tell you the level from, you know, from history, this is how we, we have it, that he, within two years, he mastered the Zohar, he mastered the writings of Moshe Kodavel and the Arizal. Within two years, un, you know, un, unfathomable. And uh, so he, you know, you know, covered a tremendous amount of, of, of ground. Now, he was also a very charismatic person. He had very good interpersonal skills, as well as he had this charm. And people felt that he could read them. You know, people like, and, and he would actually, people would come to him and he would tell them things about what they did and what they were supposed to be. And, and, they, and he would go and give them tikkunim. He says, this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to do tshuva. So he would, you know, he, he got his name out there as a very famed um, I don't know if you want to call him healer, but basically somebody with powers. Let's just call it like that. Uh, even this Afal Yosef Halabi that we spoke about before heard about him. And he said, listen, you know, he sent some rabbi. He says, check this guy out, this young capitalist. He's causing a lot of commotion over here. Is this guy legit? And there, he, they sent some rabbis. The rabbis examined him. These rabbis were so, like, impressed with it that they joined him, whatever, you know, in his place that he was. That, that's how captivating he was. So these two teamed up. You have Nathan of Gaza and Chapter C. They both teamed up together that um, that they, you know, that he was going to be the Mashiach. And in fact, Nathan of Gaza later commented and he said that he was Eliyahu Hanavi, and this guy Shabtai Tzvi was the Mashiach. And that's how they they continue to uh, um, you know uh, you know I guess spread the word. The um, Shabtai Tzvi went on. And he would start walking in fields, and he would point to a rock and be like, there's this, uh, you know, tzaddik, there's a grave of a tzaddik over here. And he said to a tzaddik, let's go pray by it. And he would go to another place and says, there's a tzaddik over here. Similar to what a result did. Um, and then he also claimed to be in communication with, with, uh, with dead souls as well. So he put himself on a slew of powers. Now, the, 
you know, this Nathan of Gaza as well of Shachar Tzvi, what do they do? Which also caused a little bit, if you think about it, they said, Mashiach is here, you guys have to do tshuva. They didn't say, besides the fact that they allowed certain things, but they said they wanted to bring the people to tshuva. Now, I thought about this for myself. Imagine how the rabbis have to deal with this. Because they saw that there's a fake guy, you know, coming here, spreading the word that he's the Mashiach, and he's telling people to do tshuva. What are the rabbis supposed to say? No, stop, don't do tshuva, he's fake. You know, like, they want them to, everyone needs to do tshuva. We want, we want the whole Kali to do tshuva. So he sort of stuck a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, they still went and they still went against, against the, um, this uh, Shabtai Tzvi. However, he still started getting, you know, a support of some rabbis. As you can see, he has two, you know, foundation of like, uh, you know, two well-learned people. And they're spreading out. The majority of the Jews are starting to get into it. So it was becoming, you know, uh, you know a craze, a movement. A while after that, um, Shaftesi went and he ended up marrying a, uh, his, his wife, his, which is the third wife. And this was someone by the name of Sarah. Uh, there's actually a lot of interesting information about her. So she was an orphan. Her uh, parents died in, the, in that 1648, the Takhtatan, the massacre that we spoke about earlier. So, uh, but she you know, grew up by, with this Polish uh, nobleman. And she had a, uh, let's just say she had a reputation of a woman of ill repute, let's just say like that. So, uh, but she used to always conceive the notion that she was going to marry the, the Messiah. Like, the, she had this idea already, I don't know when, but she always, you know, as soon as the Messiah was going to appear, so she's going to get married to him. And um, so when this type of information got out, the Shabtai Tzvi says, you know, there's a woman with ill repute who's claiming that she's going to marry the Messiah. So Shabtai Tzvi was immediately intrigued. He's like, he's like, bring her, bring her to me. He says, I had a dream. I had a dream that I'm going to marry such a woman. Uh, you know, a woman that's, you know, of ill repute. And he went, and she, she came over there, and they decided to get married. And they got married in, the, you know, in Halabi's house, in the, the wealthy guy's house. And now this, not only did not detract from his followers, but it actually increased it, because he had now a beautiful wife, and very, you know, eccentric, you know, she was very involved. So it got, it, you know, it, it sort of raised the thing. They say more or less that for the next year he had a little bit of stability uh, with his manic depression, but um, he still kept on uh, preaching. <clears throat> the, um, the popularity, the way that his fame grew was not only for the Jewish people. Also the non-Jews got into this, to this craze. There, um, there, there was actually you know, all different types of, of reports that were coming in. In fact, one of the reports, and again, most of this is all made up, was that they said that in the north of Scotland, a ship appeared uh, by sailors who spoke Hebrew, and there was a flag that had a 12 Shvatim inscripted on it. So they thought that, you know, the lost tribes are coming back over here, all of a sudden things are coming out. So the, um, as his fame grew, he even, came, he even went back, let's say, to Izmir, Turkey, where he got excommunicated. Not only did he got excommunicated for that place, he got banished from that place. But when he returned with all this flame and, flame and glory, people sort of conveniently forgot that excommunication, forgot the ban, and forgot that he was kicked out. Uh, to tell you the extent of it went, there were many synagogues that had Shabtai Sfi's initial posted all over the place. And there were prayers for him. Prayers for the Mashiach, the Shabtai Tzvi. And they had Shabtai Tzvi's picture printed side by side with him and King David. And they had also all his Kabbalistic you know, um, tefillot that he put in as well. Not only that, he also had Christians following him. Why did the Christians want to follow him? Some, you know, they, they, they believe also in something called like the, the millennium, where they think that G, JC will return, and once JC is going to return, he's going to rule for another thousand years. So they thought of this as a way that it will get the people to believe in the Mashiach, and somehow go and believe in uh, JC as well. So, the, um, and in fact, many of the non-Jews actually spread the report 
because they're the people that were merchants. So it didn't actually just stay in where he was. It went to the it went throughout the entire world. Um, again, I don't know for the entire world, but it went to a majority, a big chunk of the place who knew about this. Everybody was talking about the Jewish Messiah. So the you know and letters started describing miracles that he would you know he lit. Uh, huge bonfires, and he walked through it, and he could fly, and then, you know, all these different types of, of, you know, mystical things that he would be able to do. To the extent that the commerce, the, you know, the trading, the business slowed down. People already stopped doing business so much, they'll be like, well, what's the point? Mashiach is here, the Mashiach is here. That, you, know, you know that's how when people believe it. When it affects the business, that's when it hits, when it, when it hits a pocket, that's when you realize people believe in it. I'll give you an example. People that are becoming religious, if they make most of their money on Shabbat, you know that it didn't really hit them. But once they are able to say, okay, I'm stopping to work on Shabbat, that's when you know that the, that the religion hit home. That you know, they realize that the truth of it, that they, they believe it, and they're going to go full force in it. So once they stop, yeah. Is it bad what they believe? <clears throat> They believed wrong. Listen, you're supposed to follow the rabbis. You're supposed to follow the, the, the main uh, rabbis. They, they suffered a lot because of that. And we'll soon see. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's besides that, they had, you know, people, that not only the being tshuva, they would go and they would dip daily in the mikveh. People would go to the mikveh. They would go, and even in the cold water, they'd go to the ocean. It didn't matter. They would start screaming into the, into the streets, long live the Messiah, long live Shabtai Tzvi. You're talking about rumors that the ten tribes were surfacing from all areas, Saudi Arabia, Persia, the Sahara Desert, like, they're coming from like all places. Uh, there were people even that sold their houses. They sold, they sold that's how much, they sold their property because they realized that we have to have enough money for the journey to the Holy Land. The, even the, the wealthy believers, the, the ones that, that, were, that believed in also, they made arrangements to rent ships. And I, and I didn't find the source for this, but I remember reading that trading was, you know, the, it, it came to a stop some because you couldn't use any more of the ships. Because they were all being rented out to bring people to, to Ushalayim. So, oh, even more so, when people write, would, would uh, print out books, they would write, this is the, from, instead of, you know, quoting it from the year, you know, the year of the Jews, this is the first year from the new uh, Mashiach. Similar to how, you know, JC, uh, you know, did it. So, uh, well, how, not how he did it, but how it happened. So, and this, this was also, was no difference, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Italian, everybody was, everybody fell for this. The, um, so people went and people would be fasting. You're talking about not fasting once a day. The people would fast for days on end. Some of them, if they are able to do for almost a week, as much as they possibly could do to do the most chubah that they can. Um, and this is including men, women, and children. The, it says that the, the mikvah was so, pot, was so packed that you weren't even able to go inside it. That's how packed it was. So uh, uh, his, his odd things continued. He would sign letters, we said, like Hatan Torah. He would also sign his letters in Mashiach. And sometimes, very unfortunate that, well, unfortunate, this is what he did. He, uh, he actually referred to himself as God. He signed his letter, I am the Lord your God, Shabtai Tzvi. And he wrote the name God, like it's written in the Sefer Torah. So obviously this made a lot more rabbis go against him and excommunicate him. Generally, the, the way that it went, was that you had the, the learned people, the scholarly people, they went, um, they went, what's it called? They went against him. The more unlearned people, they went for him. So the, the rabbis, they felt a little bit powerless. You have the majority of people falling for him. They are not able to do anything. So they felt sort of stuck between, like, what, you know, how are they supposed to handle the situation? He went, also, he would, he would make them go and feed uh, forbidden fasts for the, for, the uh, for the Jewish people. So this was the chalat, the certain parts that you're not supposed to eat. He went and he would feed them. He says, no, don't worry about it, it's fine. This punishment is kalat. He went and said, no, it's okay, you're allowed to eat it. 
So, uh, people, you know, he started getting excommunicated anymore, but now the excommunication, you know, was no match for really what, what he had. The, um, you know, he went also, he went and he, he uh, secluded himself with his first wife, first wife, that he divorced, that she remarried somebody else. And he also promised women that he would liberate them from the curse of Eve, whatever that means. So, he, he was promising a lot, gaining a lot of followers, and his followers were, you know, dealt with force. You know, if you don't believe in him, it, it was, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, who do you believe in? Oh, no, no, I believe in him. You know, it was like, if you don't believe in him, it, it was, it, action was taken against you. So, this caused also the rabbis to start, you know, they weren't able to re- reject him openly. There were people, they, you know, they actually got harassed. And it was dangerous to them. There are some rabbis that had to, they had to flee. They had to run away because they objected him so, so much. So, you can see how, you know, how much they, they uh, delve into it. The... You know, he came in besides all his, you know, strange acts at the same point in time with his beautiful voice singing. He's singing in the middle of the night, uh, you know, the Tikkunim and the Kabbalot and all this, the Tihidim nonstop. That, that uh, um, you know, he sort of like was getting people and then questioning, but then getting people and then like he still was doing these weird things. I'll tell you one of the things that he did. If I'm not mistaken, this following story I believe happened on Shabbat as well, which makes everything all that more so. But I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I think it was on Shabbat. So one time he was in, uh, you know, he was in the synagogue on Shabbat. They were praying, and suddenly he stopped and he just walks out, like he just broke off. So what do people do? You know, you're a good follower, you follow him. That's what you're supposed to do. Followers follow. So he gets up and he and he goes to the, I guess, a nearby Portuguese uh, synagogue, and he starts, you know, he knocks on it. It's locked, and the, you know, he starts, uh, you know, he sees no one's opening up. He takes an axe and he starts smashing on the door, like breaking the door apart. Uh, which is obviously a clearly violation of Shabbat if this did happen on Shabbat, which I think it did. So eventually, you know, the, the people were like wondering what was going on. They opened the door, and he comes in with all his followers. The rabbi there, which was one of the rabbis that opposed him, got so scared that he, you know, like, uh, you know, they, well, I don't know if he got scared or he ran away, but they actually banished him. They actually kicked him out. And uh, there, Shabbat Tzvi goes, and he started reading the portion of the Torah. But he didn't read it from the Sefer Torah, from there. He read it from like a printed copy. Which is obviously you don't read from a printed copy. You read from the actual scroll. But no, he read it from the from the printed copy, and then he would call upon you know who, any of his followers to read the Torah, and he would make them say the Baha using God's name the way that it's written, not the way that you're supposed to pronounce it, which is obviously a very big violation. And then to top it off, he started handing out kingdoms to all the followers. Is so you going to be a Persia? You know, you're going to be the high priest. You're going to be the Turkish kingdom. You know, everybody was getting everyone was getting stuff. So the. He continued this, this ceremony with, with a furious speech against his un, the unbelieving rabbis, and he compared them to unclean animals. And he, then he went and proclaimed, he said, listen, you know, you need a Mashiach ben Yosef to come before Mashiach ben David. He was claiming that he was Mashiach ben David. So he claimed that a certain person that died in the massacre of uh, Tachvatad in 1648, he was Mashiach ben Yosef, and hence he was here before, and that, you know, that's why it's okay, so uh, let no one convince you otherwise. So, um, then... He went up to the to the to the Ahuna Kodesh and with a Torah scroll in his arm, and he sang this Spanish love song, this this you know non-Jewish love song again about you know the emperor's daughter or something like that. And this was known as his favorite song. And he went and he started explaining this is really kabbalistic and it's really mystical and there's this and that and explain all these things. Um, and then he proclaimed himself as the anointed of the God of Jacob, the redeemer of Israel. And then he fixed the date for the redemption. He's like, here's a date. And the date was the 15th of Sivan, the year 5426. Or in English, it was June 18th, the year 1666. That was the date he said that this is going to happen. This is when the big stuff is happening. So, 
the um, you know the rabbi who you know went there was a, there was a, some someone there I guess of a scholarly you know area I think it was even a rabbi that um, you know after Shabbos he said that he's going to go and he's going to take the crown from the from the Turkish government so one of the rabbis says yeah and he started basically like questioning it. He got, the Shabbat got so upset that, you know, he sort of like banished him. And all his followers went against this, this person that went against uh, Shabbat Tzvi, that eventually this rabbi was so scared, he said, okay, fine, fine, I believe, I believe, you know, you know he's like, yeah. and he actually went and he actually uh, uh, became one of those believers. The, um, you know, Shabbat Tzvi went and he decided that you don't need to fast anymore on the 10th of Tevet. He says, the fast is, is, uh, is done, uh, you don't have to fast anymore. This, uh, you know, every time he had like this big, you know, thing that he would come out with, he had a lot of people, the rabbis, that would go against him. This also, again, he had a lot of rabbis that went against him, and he again, he um, he, uh, he he went to, he kept on traveling to a different uh, location. The the masses that believed in him were so much uh, that they convinced themselves so much that they felt that they had prophecy. And there was about 150 people that said that they prophesied that they would get into this like trance and they would start like repeating verses from the Torah, uh, you know, something related to the Mashiach or sometimes something related about Shabbat or visions that they see about Shabbat So you had all in all these like men, women, and children all of a sudden claiming to be prophets that he is the Mashiach. So you know, it starts getting convincing even for people that weren't. Even though you look at it now, they're like, "This is so foolish." But imagine living through that. Living through that, there got a lot of people convinced to it. The, this is why you need to know that one thing that you always need to do is you don't follow the public. You follow the rabbis. Legit rabbis, those are the ones that you need to follow. That is, that is probably one of the most important lessons that you can learn from this. Because you see how fooled people got, how much they fell, and, and they fell so hard. And you will soon see how, how bad it was. The, but meanwhile... They are, they are thinking that they are, the Mashiach is coming. So there's like dancing and partying in the street. There's like dancing and partying, but then there's fasting and tshuva. And then there's dancing and partying, and there's fasting and then tshuva. Um, and all these things that, that uh, either Shabbatzi or Nathan from Gaza went and he uh, orchestrated them to, uh, to do. The, you know, the Turkish government, meanwhile, gets this report. You know, like, you know, this is a commotion that's going around around the world that's coming from your, you know, you know, you know your area. And they started, you know, thinking, okay, what's, you know, there's something off with this. Okay. So, they, um, so, so when, when uh, Shabtetzi went and landed in, or landed, whenever he, he reached, uh, he left Izmir and he went to Constantinople, uh, which was Istanbul, now in present day it's Istanbul, he, the Grand Vice over there went and he had him arrested. He had him arrested and the, um, he put him in prison. Now you would think, okay, this could go like, alright, so now your Mashiach is arrested. That's sort of like, you know, if you have like your, J, what is it called, G.I. Joe, if like you have your, you know, like, your iron, whatever, like the man. You have, if you have your best guy locked up, that sort of be like, not so good. But just the opposite. They took it as a positive sign. They took it as a positive sign. It says, no, this means even better. And, they, and it just increased. So there was the dancing and the thing. And there were prayers for Shabbat Tzvi. The, um, the Grand Vizier over here, though, showed leniency towards Shabbat Tzvi. He realized that if, and, and thank God this didn't happen. Because you know what happened if he would have been martyred? If he would have been murdered? He, there was a new religion that would have sprouted. There was something that would have, you know, would have happened. He said he has too much followers. He says he had to play this very carefully. So he just kept him uh, you know, locked up. In the beginning, when he kept him locked up, he... Um, he put him in a very tight, you know, corner, like dungeon, like nothing, uh, nothing nice, nothing good. But after a generous amount of uh, greasing and bribing, the, you know, he got moved to a higher, uh, you know, nicer quarter. The, they say that he was, the, there was, you know, the grand visor would have released him if they would have paid a significant amount of a bribe. But Shabtai, he said, no, 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 leave it, we don't need it. 
I'll come out when I need to. He says, no need to pay the bribe. So this also increases reputation. It'll be like, wow, these are, right? this guy, he was able to get out, but he didn't want to. Oh, it's a deek. You know, so, they, so it increases uh, his fame as well. The, um, and, and he actually met with people over there. One time he had to be transferred to a different location, and this happened in Aleph Pesach. And uh, this, on Aleph Pesach, he went, and I guess somehow, in, I don't know if this is transfer, when he got there, when he was there in the, in the previous place, he sacrificed a Kalban Pesach. In Istanbul, in that area, he sacrificed a Koban Pesach, and he ate it. And not only did he eat it and give it over to other people to eat it, he told the people they're even able to eat the forbidden parts where you're not supposed to eat. Uh, he says that everything is, uh, you know, and he said you have to make the bacha, obviously. The one who permits for the forbidden food. So he went and he, and he continued that. And uh, a short while after that, as the fast of the 17th of Tammuz and the fast of the 9th and up came, he says, oh, don't worry about it, those guys. You don't have to do it anymore. Is over. No more fasting. So not only that, that he made the ninth of Av a a, um, a day of celebration. It was his birthday. Celebrating my birthday, ninth of Av. No more fasting. Just from now on, um, it's going to be a, a festival. So the um, you know there was there was a Polish scholar, and this this meeting this was like a very famed meeting between Shabtai and this Polish uh, scholar. That, um, that no one's really sure exactly what happened. There's a lot of legendary information that was going on in there. But I'll tell you the gist of it, at least one, one idea of it. Yeah, please. Thank you. Yeah, that uh, um, this, this Polish scholar went over to, this, uh, to Shabtai Tzvi, and they, they sat together. Three days they were locked, thank you. Three days they were locked inside the room. Three days they were like, and you hear like arguing nonstop. So much so that they only like stopped when they had to fall asleep for a few little short while. They woke up again, straight back into the arguing, going back and forth. Now they say what the argument was, was this guy, this, this Polish scholar said, he says, um, how could you be uh, Meshach ben David? I am Meshach ben Yosef and I didn't reveal myself. So, and each one was bringing sources from their Kabbalistic works. Says, no, I am, and this, and no, it doesn't have to be like that. And going back and forth, back and forth. Until finally, this Polish scholar gets up and he says, you're fake, you're a phony, you're a fraud, and I'm done. I'm headed here. You're bringing only, you're bringing, uh, you know, idolatry, idol worship into this, into this uh, place. And he leaves. He goes straight, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, and he goes to, and he goes straight to the uh, Grand Visor. And he says, this, this, uh, the person, this Polish uh, scholar, and he says, I want to convert to Islam. So, what do they say? The Chabod. You know, put on the, the, the turban and, you know, scratch your ears, whatever you do, and uh, go do your, your, um, your, 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 join the ship. So, as soon as he converts to Islam, he says, you know, there's a guy, Shabtai Tzvi, and he sort of ratted him out. He said, this guy, Shabtai Tzvi, is claiming to the Mashiach, he's going to take over the Turkish government, he's rebelling against you. So, he says, oh yeah, is he? So, by the way, this is one of the reasons that he went and he converted first, because if he would have snitched to him as a Jew... The Jewish people would have, would have you know, the, the, the Mashiach fever was so strong that he would have destroyed him. But now that he was, you know, he was an, you know, he was, you know, he was Islam, no one could touch him. So he went, he converted, and he, he ratted him out to the, to the visor. And then the visor went and he brought, uh, he brought Shabtai to to him. And they put him on, on, on trial. And he says, you know, are you, you claim to the Mashiach. Shabtai denied, denied that he's the Mashiach. Oh, what are you talking about? I don't know about this. So the, the Sultan over there went and he, and he gave him a choice. He says, you have two options. Either you're going to die, or you're going to convert to Islam. And this is what the Mashiach of Israel, this is what the, the things they did. He didn't want to die, and he took the route of converting. And he went, and, and this you know, alleged Mashiach went, and he converted to Islam. 
he became from Shabtai Tzvi, he became Aziz Muhammad or Muhammad Effendi. That was his, uh, that was his new name. So um, the reason why that the Sultan really liked the idea of him having co- uh, converted because the Sultan was a deeply religious man. And he would think if this charismatic Jewish leader goes and he has such a big following, if he converts to Islam, you know how many Islamic people were going to get converting to Islam because of him? He says, you know... Unbelievable the amount of uh, uh, you know of the converts that he's going to get. So not only did he con- did he convert him, he actually went and he he gave him an honorary title called Kapibashi, which was uh, called the you know I guess in Islam the keeper of the palace gates. He was considered a very important convert, and he was giving a payment of 150 whatever gold coins I don't know whatever the currency was back then of per day is what he was given as as you know just for being Islam uh, Islamic. So. This, obviously, imagine the news comes out. Mashiach Ahmad converted to Islam. So this came as a very, very strong shock to a lot of the people. So many people, they refused to come to the sentence. They're like, no, it can't, it can't be. It doesn't make sense. There were actually hundreds of families that went and converted with him to Islam. Uh, the, you know, so you think about it. It's Nathan of Gaza. What did he say? Nathan of Gaza is a guy who, no matter what Shabtai Tzvi did, he proved it somehow that it was right and it was a tikkun and it was a great thing. This was not, not different. Nathan of Gaza says, what, you think this is a chasu shalom? You're, you're, you're doubting the Mashiach? He says, you know why he's doing this? He says, there's hidden nitzotot, there's hidden sparks throughout all the, you know, the, you know the, the empire, the Islamic empire. He is going and he is digging inside. He's going, he's taking it down from within. He's going in, uh, you know, in, like a spy. And he's going in and he's going to take out all the nitzotot, all the sparks. And then he's going to go and he's going to, you know, come, you know, you know, out and bring the whole world towards the Mashiach. So he says, he says, ah, you know, how can you do this? He has taken upon himself the shame of being called a traitor for you. That's what this Nathan of Gaza goes and, and uh, spreads out. So the... Um, you know, the, the people, you know, it, it's very difficult to come to the belief that you've been doing something wrong. And this is one of the reasons why it's very hard for Balchuvas. People, especially younger Balchuvas, it's easier. You know, okay, it's fine. But as you get older, 50, 60, 70, it's hard to be a Balchuva because that means your whole life I was living a lie, I was living a fake, I was living a fraud, a phony. Unless you are one of those type of people that always knew that it was the truth, but you, were, you wanted to party. Uh, but generally speaking, it's very difficult because it's hard to convince that you're doing something wrong. These people, it's very difficult to convince that they were doing something wrong. So it, it came as a very, very strong shock to them. You know, I'll, I'll tell you like how bad it was. The, imagine, the Jews realized that Mashiach is coming. So what did they go to the Gentile neighbors that all bothered them and persecuted them and caused them problems out of the year? I'd be like, hey, you know, Tony. Well, I don't know, it was, you know, Istanbul, Turkey. Mukhman, you know, uh, Fatma, come here. You know, it says, remember all that stuff you're doing to me? Well, Mashiach is coming, you're getting paid back. Oh yeah, baby, it's payback time. You know, and they would come and they would, and then all of a sudden, you know, after all their going and bashing all the other people, all of a sudden, you know, Mashiach is now in Islam. What are you going to do? What are you going to do now? So they got, you know, besides all their hype, that they, you know, they lost it all. Unfortunately, many, many converted to Islam. There were also people that converted to Christianity. There was like, that's it, we're done. What are we supposed to do? There were also people, unfortunately, that committed suicide. So it really shook down the, the Jewish, uh, um, besides... You think about it, this is shortly we had a you know, massacre. Then you had in the Shabtai Tzvi. It just kept, the, you know, the Jewish, you know, I guess, spirit was really going down. So the, the rabbis, the way that they dealt with it after he converted was, you know, they, didn't, they were sort of kept in hush-hush. Like, sort of like, let's forget about it, let's move on. So the, um, you know, uh, after that, after he converted to Islam, he went and he... he uh, you know, he brought many people along with him, but he still sort of kept Judaism in a way. So he was outside, and this is the way that they kept it as well. Outside, they were Islamic, but inside, they kept, you know, Judaism, 
you know, although it was a little bit of a twisted Judaism that they did some weird things that we're soon going to see. Um, but he sort of had this, this mix of them. He, at the year about 1667, his, uh, his wife Sarah gave uh, birth to a son. He named him uh, Yishmael Mordechai. At 1671, he divorced his wife while she was pregnant with his daughter, but then he remarries her shortly afterwards. Um, I think he was even thinking about marrying somebody else in between, and whatever, then he ended up getting married her afterwards. Uh, after a while, though, that the, Turk, the, you know, the Turkish government sees that, you know, he's like, Islam, but he's acting Jewish, he's doing all these things that they stopped paying him all that, uh, you know, the salary that he was giving him, um, when he was discovered that he was uh, saying Tehillim with the Jews. A short while after that, the, his wife Sarah died, I think she died around the age of 35, and after that he went and he remarried a woman by the name of Esther, and she was a daughter of one of his rabbis that followed him, that was uh, his followers. The, um, you know, and, and about, uh, what was the year that we said, um, 1676, I think we said, was uh, when he passed away. He passed away about six weeks before he passed away. He goes and he asks for the nearby Jewish community to send him a Jewish prayer book for the high holidays. And uh, who knows what he did with that, but um, he went and, you know, after, after when he was about 50 years old, he went and he died. Uh, I don't know if he went and died, he just died. He, uh, but why do I say he went and he died? Because what is Nathan of Gaza now going to say? Because people still had his followers. People, this is years afterwards. Nathan of Gaza, so people go over to him and be like, what happened? The Messiah, the Messiah died. He says, no, come on. This is it. His, the death was nearly an, you know, it was a, you know, a mirage of something. He's actually ascending to the other world and then he's going to come back and then he's, he basically convinced them also somehow that it's not, it's not over yet. Uh, Nathan of Gaza died about four years after, after Shabbat Tzvi. So, the, um, you know, the Shabtai Tzvi didn't die after that. They actually, and in fact, it's still in existence today. You don't hear about it that often. But, um, you know, the, the, there, are, there are people called the Dunmeh, if I'm pronouncing it right. These are otherwise known as voluntary Muranos. What they did was, is they, there are people that outside look like Muslim, but they practice some Jewish ideas still. And they'll have different things, um, you know, either some of them is heresy in Judaism that they practice from Shabtai Tzvi, but some of them are, are legit Judaism. So they practice outside Muslim, and inside they're, they're, they're like Sheptinians. They're waiting for the Shabtai Tzvi to come back again uh, as the Mashiach. So, um, yeah, most of the people actually came back to the Jewish fold. Not, this wasn't the majority of them, but there were people that stuck to it. And they say nowadays, and the estimates vary, it varies big time, and this is in Turkey, uh, where they would be, you're looking anywhere between 4,000 to 100,000 of these type of people that are in existence today. Um, so, even though now, now people are becoming very secular. That's generally the, tradi- you know, the way that the, even you know, look at the Christianity. It's more of a secular uh, path. So also these people are also becoming more secular. But you still have these people that follow these weird, um, these weird ideologies. For example, they will, um, they will go pray by the ocean. Similar to, because Shabtai Tzvi used to go a lot of swimming in the ocean. So they would do a lot of things that are, that are you know, either Jewish in a sense or Shabtinian in a sense. That, but outside they will look completely Muslim. So they have this uh, mix, uh, mixed thing. The... You know, the, the, uh, the after effect of this had on the Jewish nation was actually very severe because now any Jewish young guy that started speaking Kabbalah, people were like, you know, oh no, this is another one. You know, they, they just banned it right away. And there are righteous people that got stuck under this, you know, heat because of that. Of the, you know, two, of, you know, two very famous ones, one of them was Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lozato, and Rav Yonas and Eipschitz, that they were, you know, each, Rav Moshe Chaim Lozato, 
he was, um, you know, we have his farim now, we, we learn his farim, he, but he got persecuted his entire life because he was preaching these things when he was younger. Because uh, people were afraid that this is just another, sh- you know, shaptai tzi that's, that's happening. Rabbi Yonasan Aibshitz, he, you know, the reason why he got a lot of heat was because he wrote a kameh for somebody. Um, and in there, one of, the, you know, one of the other rabbis thought that it's just something that's related to something that's shaptinian, and they also got a lot of heat. So a lot of rabbis took a lot of heat from him afterwards because they, you know, they were teaching either mystical things or or something along those lines, anything that resembled something that had to do with Shabbat they were just like, you know, like we can't. The Jewish nation can't handle it. So they went, they went all out against it. Uh, this actually opened up, though, the, you know, the, the floor for the Baal Shem Tov, for Hasidut to open, to come into play. And shortly after that's when the Baal Shem Tov came, and where the Hasidut came into play, that, uh, you know, he, you know, basically showing that the, you could have a connection because a lot of everyone was depressed, we're down. So this this was the you know the Hasidut teaches that you have to be connected to Hashem with joy and happiness, and there's a personal connection. So this is where the Baal Shem Tov came in to sort of or, you know rejuvenate all the spirits that were that were down. The interesting though, I want to end off. This is um, the you know like what happened after Shabbat Tzvi died. And this is actually a lot after what, what happened after he died. This is we're going to end off with this uh, final segment. This is uh, his possession. He possessed somebody. This Shabbat Tzvi, and we're going to speak about it. If you want to look it up, the source for this is uh, the Minchat Yehuda. Uh, it's written by uh, Rabbi Yehuda Fataya, which was his. Uh, you know, I, I want to do it at one point in time. I don't know if we'll, we'll get around to it or not. I haven't decided it. I have this class already prepared for years already. I just never gave it. Um, it's a class on possession, exorcism, dibukim, things like that. So he was the specialist for dibukim. He, this is this was like a, he lived in Baghdad in the early the late 1800s early 1900s in the same time as the Benish Chai and he was a very very big uh, big Tamid Kham Tzadik a Kabbalist uh, and his focus he had a very very strong and he has a whole part of his Sefel that speaks about the stories that he that he dealt with when dealing with with exercising these spirits nowadays the Chafetz Chaim says that the, you know there's no real spirits you know this is not going to be any more exorcism anymore until Mashiach comes but this is before the Chafetz Chaim even came to being when the, when possession was still uh, you know was still in existence so. Uh, the spirit of Shabtai Tzvi. So there was once a boy, um, his name was Ezra, and he was a yeshiva boy. He would sit and he would learn Torah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it sort of happened that after, you know, as he got older, he sort of, you know, got into this daze and he started imagining somebody else's life. He actually started picturing, a sort of, at a, not like a dream, but it was actually like he was really there. Like one time he was, he was sitting over there, he was learning. He heard the, you know, the, the birds chirping, whatever it is. He closed his eyes for a second, and all of a sudden he opens it up, and he hears, uh, you know, he hears like, chain, like chains, you know, dragging behind him. And he feels himself that he's chained, and he's walking, and then he hears someone screaming, you know, keep on moving. And, you know, so he's like walking in chain, and then he starts um, speaking in a language that he doesn't understand. But then he does understand it, and he understands other people, but he doesn't know what he's speaking. And he's interacting, and he's sort of living, he's living his life through somebody else's eyes. And he sees, like, somebody's calling him, and says, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes, I am the Messiah. You know, and he's talking, in the, and, you know, he's talking with this very important, uh, you know, Islamic, you know, figurehead. And then shortly after that, he leaves unchained, and he's sort of in this, you know, days, he's in this, in this life. Uh, a short while after that, he suddenly he wakes up. He wakes up, and he's in his bedroom, in, in his dorm in yeshiva, and uh, his, um, you know, his his uh, his friends. He goes over to the fence. Says, "What happened? How did I get here?" He says, "You know, we, we found you in the in the forest, just laying on the floor, and we tried to wake you up, and you wouldn't wake up. So we we brought you here. So when a second that he woke up, he's like, "Where's Sarah?" And they're like, "Who's Sarah?" 
and then he's like, "What do you mean, who's Sarah? Where's Sarah?" And they're like, we, "You don't, know, you don't even know who's Sarah." And he couldn't. And it was a sort of like a dream. Like after you know, when you wake up from a dream, it's really real. And then after a while, you're sort of like, it's like, oh, it's just a dream. Like after a while, he was like, "Yeah, who was I asking for? Who's Sarah? I have no idea." So. He kept on um, having these types of visions and seeing somebody else's life. You know, at one point in time, um, he was in a state that he actually woke up. Um, he was living somebody else's life. He was doing whatever that other person was doing. And he, when he came into being, um, I think one of his roommates came in and saw him. He was unclothed, wearing his talit and tfili on him. And he just, you know, he didn't even know how he got to it. So he was, uh, um, you know, and this, and this kept on going so much so that it gets stronger. Instead of getting weaker, it got stronger. That uh, he would go on dates with girls to potential, you know, matches. That uh, he would accidentally call his date Sarah. And they'll be like, who's Sarah? And be like, oh, or, you know, like, or whatever. And obviously, that would make the girls run. Uh, there was one girl that was really impressed with him. And she was like, how is it? So, you know, yeshiva bukul, you know, you're, you're good, you learn to lie, you're a big, right, you know, you're, you're a good kid. Why are you not married anymore? So he tells him, he says, he didn't even realize, he heard himself say this. He says, oh, I've been married all along. He says, he's, she's like, what? He's like, oh yeah, I married the Sefer Torah. And, he, and, and she like, like, and obviously scared her off, uh, you know, and rightfully uh, so. So he first, he realized there was something going on with him. He actually went to big rabbis. Um, and I think one of the rabbis went and sent it to the Ben Yishai. And the response back was, because he said, you know, he's having certain things that were happening to him. I guess the rabbi, you know, investigated a little bit. And the response back was, uh, was um, it's too powerful. The time is not yet proper. Don't do anything because it's very dangerous. May God have mercy on this man. This is not something that's very, you know, nice to hear. So, uh, but it was nothing that he could do. So 10 years go by. And it's, it, the behavior got worse and worse. He started calling people by their by by previous like names that they, that he remembered in his previous life, and he started having visions of being excommunicating, and then he had visions of converting to Islam. And uh, even at a certain point, he suddenly had thoughts of just he wanted to convert to Christianity, so, like like thoughts that came into his mind or other unholy type of, type of thoughts. So. He decided that he's going to go see Rabbi Huda Fataya, which is the author of the of the sefer that we're reading this uh, this from. So Rabbi, he goes and he says, you know, he tells this this rabbi, this kabbalist, he says, you know, for years I've been saying kaddish or kedusha, and evil thoughts are coming into my mind, as he says, as if somebody's speaking within his heart. So he said, you know, did anything ever? Do you ever do anything to it? He says, yeah. One rabbi once told him to write a mezuzah and wear it as like a uh, over his heart, like a necklace or whatever it was over there. He says, but it didn't help at all. So fine, so the rabbi, you know, started, um, you know, doing what he did to get uh, out of these positions. And one of the, it's, it's uh, providing these, uh, you know, unifications, these, uh, um, these tikkunim. And that is by, you know, saying things into the person's ear that were, you know, Kabbalistic nature to, to draw out the, the spirit or, you know, to at least uh, uh, make him speak or whatever it is. So... As he's saying this, um, this unifications, these things. So suddenly, the um, you know this this guy Ezra starts laughing. So he says, "Why are you laughing?" He says, "Because the guy, you know, the spirit inside him was telling him." He said, "You know, um, he you know he was first of all he said he's cursing you. He's telling the rabbi. He says the spirit inside me is cursing you, and he's saying he says your teacher the Ben Yishai didn't want to touch me. He says he wanted to stay for me, and you're going to go and you're going to be able to do yours. You're going to come and touch me. So he didn't he didn't listen. The rabbi kept on doing the unifications, and he kept on cursing and swearing in in the heart, but. They paid no attention. Finally, the Ezra said, let me, let me listen to what he wants to say. So, um, he goes and he says, um, he's, the Spirit says, says ask, ask, this, ask this rabbi what he wants from me. Why is he causing me so much problems? So, the rabbi responded, he says, I want to know what city are you from and what is your name? 
So, the, and the rabbi continues, he says, and don't lie to me, because if you start up with me, I'm going to show you the might of my arm, this rabbi said. So the spirit said, you know, the spirit answered, he says, you know, many people like this rabbi wanted me to tell them that his name, my name, and they were entirely unsuccessful. He says, why? Because I'm a stronger than a rock and I never back down. So the rabbi says, all right, let's see who prevails. And he was and he continues doing the unifications. And, um, and, and he says, I'm not going to stop until you tell me your name and where you're from. And the rabbi continues and says, you're causing yourself this pain, not me. And he went and he did you know, certain capitalistic things with a shofar and you know, blowing it and saying these capitalistic things. And he continued until finally the, the spirit cried out and said, fine, fine, fine. I'll tell him my name. And uh, you know, this is not the rabbi's first you know, uh, time that he had to do this. He knew that these types of spirits, uh, these, uh, these type of, of souls, they're like Paul. The second that they have a rest, they, get, they harden their heart already again. So, but he went and he said, the this, this spirit said his name is David, the son of Shaptai, the son of Rebekah from the city of Ismail. And what happened? He had forsaken his faith. He has been with a Gentile woman, left no children, and he said it's now has been 17 years since he's been inside this man, Ezra. So he said to, um, he said, this, this man said to Ezra that actually when you read the story inside from the, from the, um, from the Minchat Yehuda, he doesn't, he, he says, he calls him the name, not only Ezra, but he also calls him the name Bechol, Bechol. But he says, whatever, it's the same person. So if you look inside, you'll see it as those two different names. So he goes to Ezra and he says, uh, the spirit says, why are you causing this so much against me? He says, what did I do to you? Just let me be, I'm going to be in here, I'll be quiet. Don't bother me, I won't bother you, we'll live our own lives. So... This, this Ezra said, said, listen, why don't you just go to Gehenom? Why are you sticking inside my body? Go to Gehenom. So he says, I can't. He says, I'm not able to go to Gehenom. Said the spirit, why? Because I've been with a Gentile woman. And he says, listen, he says, let's do it. Let's make a deal. He says, I'm not going to cause you any more harm. You don't go anymore to this rabbi. And we'll, we'll leave it like, like that. So this, this, uh, this man told this rabbi, and he says, this is what the, this is what the spirit uh, told me. So the rabbi says, fine. You know, the rabbi didn't want to, you know, he had other stuff that he obviously needed to do. And he says, if this is going to happen, let's see, let's try it. He knew this is not going to last, but he says, let's try it. It only lasted for a few days before the spirit again started whispering, you know, into, the, into his heart, different things, different uh, impurities that he should, uh, um, you know, the, the, of the sins that he should do. So he came back to the rabbi, and the rabbi again went, and he started again with the unifications. And he says, this time I want you to tell, you, I want you to tell me the, your real name. And you should know... They said the rabbi, that I know your real name. An angel already told me your real name, so I'm not going to stop until you tell me your real name. So, um, and he continued the invocation until the, the spirit got, you know, nervous, and he says, fine, I'll tell you. And he says his name was Tzvi, and his mother's name was Rebecca, and he was from the city of Ismael. So the rabbi told him, says, tell me the truth. First you told me that you're the, you are David, the son of Shaptai, and now you're telling me that you're Tzvi. He, the rabbi says, are you not then the famous Shaptai Tzvi from the city of Izmir who pretended to be the Mashiach? And he said, yes, that is the truth. So, he, so the rabbi said, if so, so you've been dead you know, over 230 years. He says, what have you been doing for 230 years that you're still in this world? So the spirit says, says go get a sheet of paper and a quill. And you want to start me telling you everything that I've been for the past 230 years. You don't have anything better to do. Maybe go, why don't you go learn? Aren't you late for the study hall, says the spirit. So the rabbi says, you know, like, you know, you're right, I am, I got to go to the study hall. So he went to the study hall. He went and he saw the rabbi, um, rabbi Agassi over there, and he told him about Shabtai's feet. And rabbi Agassi also went and told the, you know, the, the Benish Chai, both of them warned him, he says, you got to be careful with this spirit. This thing is very dangerous, you want to stay away from it, you have to be very, very careful with it. So um, when, the rab- when, the, when this Ezra came back to the rabbi for more unifications, he realized that he had to, you know, be, you know, very, very cautious. So he started speaking gently with the spirit. And he says, 
And he says, uh, listen, he says, uh, the rabbi says, why are, you, why are you struggling with me? He says, you know, do I want to take revenge on you? Did you do anything wrong to me? So this person said, you weren't even alive by the time when I was around. He says, do I do anything to my father? He says, no, I don't even know your father, and neither your father was neither alive when I was, when I was there. So the rabbi goes, says, am I doing it then for payment? Is, is this, is this uh, you know, this guy, Shabtai Tzvi, is he going to, I mean, not the, is the guy Ezra, is he going to pay me? The guy, so the spirit says, there's no way he's going to pay you. He doesn't have a red cent to his name. He doesn't have any money. So he says, why am I doing this? Because I have compassion for your soul. You're a part of God's soul. And I want to give you a tikkun. So he says, what is my crime that you constantly curse me? And you constantly, you know, uh, you know give me such um, heart, uh, you know, headache with all these things. So the spirit says, because I can't bear this, these unifications. It's very, very painful. The rabbi responded, listen. This is the way of the world. You know, you go to a doctor, you have a cut, a bruise, and you need, you need some things, you know, you need to get pain until you, until you get uh, healed. So he goes, and, he, and the rabbi says, he says, tell me. He says, um, don't you feel like after we do the unifications, you feel a little better? Don't you feel like the klipot that are surrounding you are going down a little bit? So um, the, after, after the rabbi, you know, talked to him in a very calm and relaxing way, the spirit answered, he says, you know, the words of a wise man are gracious and worthy of a kiss. He says, you know, I'm not going to conceal this from you, that even though the unifications are very, very painful for me, but um, I do feel that my skin has become softer, and the cuts have begun to close. And, I'm, you know, I'm, and he, the spirit says, I'm in agreement with your words. And he says, let's continue with the unifications, the spirit says. Let's do it. And he says, if I scream and if I cry and if I curse, don't pay attention to it, continue with the unifications. So the rabbi says, no, 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 that's not going to be enough for me. I'm not going to be just here one-handed. You've got to go and work on this on your end also. You've got to come and, and try to, to break the klipot from within as well. So the spirits are fine. Okay, and let you be successful. And they went and they started doing unification so much so to the extent that both of them were so exhausted afterwards that they couldn't even speak anymore. So they just sat in silence for a while until till they gained their strength. The rabbi then asked him, he says, are you satisfied with all the unifications? So he praised them. Now the spirit started praising him. And he says, you know, I feel that the weight of the husk has been, the, the klipot has been uh, lightened. So then the rabbi asked him, says, how, how thick is the klipot? You know, klipa is the spiritual impurity that surrounds you. He says, how thick is your, is your uh, spiritual uh, you know, impurity? So the spirit answers, says, without exaggeration, it's one cubit thick. Can you imagine that, that that's, you know, thickness of, of impurity that's just surrounding this, this soul? So um, the, the rabbi, Rabbi Udiftaya, went and he asked him a few questions. And then, but, he, you know, the way that he wrote it and the way that I'm going to say it is, I'm, you know, he just wrote the answers and you can figure out the questions by then. So we're just going to list you all the things that he, that he said about who this person was, who this soul was, which was obviously, we know, Shabtai Tzvi. So this is what he said. He says, I am Shabtai Tzvi. He died by strangulation. He did not repent and he was buried in the Gentile cemetery. When he was alive, the klipot, the husks, would actually appear before his eyes. He was able to see them. The reason he became wicked was because he was not conceived in holiness. His re- he was reincarnated, reincarnated in countless number of reincarnations. He also, um, he also went on, and he obviously says, you know, the, the, the Moshe Ahmed, the Torato Ahmed, he said that everything was true, but that doesn't make any difference because once you're dead, the, you know, you're exempt from the Torah, as we see in Kamal and Shabbat, page 38. The, uh, and he goes on, he says, his reward for fulfilling the commandments was already credited to somebody else, to another righteous man. So he's not even getting reward for the stuff that he did from, from all the severity of all the sins that he did. Um, he said also that his... Um, the beginning of his downfall was when he sinned with a married woman. And he said also, which the rabbi also heard about it, but then he, you know, he validated it, that he had relations with a male while wearing uh, talit and tefillin. He also then went and he sent a young man to be with his own wife, 
and told him, whatever my wife tells you to do, that's what you could do. So, you know, this guy, serious amount of, of, of sins. He said that the chibuta keva, the beating of the grave, which is a very, very hard time for a soul, right after a soul dies, lasted for 12 years. And he said until now he's been reincarnated in all the beasts of the forest, and this is the first time he was able to go into a human being. 200 and over 230 years. The, um, and he says the reason that he was able to go into this human being, like how did he get, how did he have access to it, is because this particular, you know, person, he went and he, uh, you know, using a clean uh, tongue, he, he uh, you know, clean lashon, he went and he kissed uh, the opposite gender. And because of that, he says it's been over 30 years since he's entered this, uh, this, uh, um, this person. And he says... Um, he continues the spirit and he said he was condemned to be with JC in a certain area of Gehenom, which is in boiling feces, and for a certain part on a Friday day that he was supposed to, that's where he's supposed to be for, for part of his uh, tikkun. And he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and he, and he caused me to meet you, says the spirit to this rabbi, so that you would merit to rectify me. Because this was known, he was known as the one who was able to do all these things. Um, and then the spirit goes on and says, as for you, Ezra, the, you know, or, or AKA also known as Bechol, he says, I want you to go, and the spirit is telling him, you're going to go and you're going to recite Zohar daily. He gave him, he gave him tikkunim. The spirit says, "This is what you need to do." So much, so much so that he actually went and he would wake him up early to pray. He, the spirit would be like, "Hey, wake up from inside! Come, let's go into, into the synagogue to pray," because it would help him for his tikkunim. And Shabbat um, he went and told him. He says, um, "You should fear no more evil thoughts. But if you do have any more evil thoughts in your mind, remember this pasuk." And I'm going to give you, and he's going to say, I'm going to tell you three Kabbalistic names that you're supposed to think about in this pasuk. It's going to erase all your, all your, um, your, your evil thoughts. And the pasuk is from Tehillim, uh, chapter 45, verse 2. And he says, while you have that verse in your mind, while you say that, you think of the divine name, Rash Chet Shin, as well as the divine name, Kuf Resh Ayin, and Sin Tet and Nun. Um, that's what you're supposed to think about during those times. And the thoughts will be gone from your heart. And uh, so the rabbi goes over to the to this uh, to the spirit and says, "And how will I know? And how are you going to leave it?" He says, "Don't worry. When I leave the uh, when I leave Ezra, I'm going to leave it without any fanfare. I'm going to go quietly." He says, "And how will I know?" He says, "You'll know. You'll figure it out." And a few days later, he went and he kept it and he checked him out and he realized that there was no spirit anymore inside of him. The um, there there is a question that's asked, like, what what, what shaykhs did he have to do with JC? Like, why did this boy suddenly you know have thoughts to become into uh, um, you know Christianity? As you know, he was converted to Islam. Nothing to do with Christianity. So, the rabbi answered, it says that uh, the reason for that is, is because his life and JC's life was very parallel. They, they, they lined the parallel. So, the, you know, that's why he was also you know, ordained that he was going to be with him in a certain area in uh, Gehenom as well. Um, this also just reminds me, which I actually wanted to say in the beginning of the class, that uh, I don't know if it, was, if it confused a lot of people because I've been getting some email, not, not really that much, um, regarding, uh, you know, the, I, I spoke about when I spoke about JC, how it's all folk, phone, you know, fake, a phone, you know, fraud, everything, just nonsense. Um, I brought up, and I, you know, the, the idea that it's very even unlikely that he existed. Uh, and I brought proofs from all different various sources of why it's very likely that JC never actually existed. Now, um, the reason why I brought that was just to show you that if we're not sure if he existed, that means he didn't do much of a dent in, the, in, in those day and age. But um, it does appear that, you know, I, you know and I don't know if it came out wrong or if misconstrued, but um, I do believe that he did, ex- my personal opinion is that he did exist, because we see some sources in the Kabbalah about him. Um, in the, you know, in the Gemara there is a little bit of source also. So it's possible that he, you know, very likely that he did exist, but the proof of bringing all that source, just to clarify, was not to show that, no, he never existed, but to show that even if he did exist, you know, if there's a doubt that he exists, it shows that how, how nobody cared about him. 
it was back then. No, nobody even did two, two, uh, you know, two thoughts on it. But anyways, that finishes our uh, discussion on the fake uh, Mashiach that we spoke about. So we spoke about JC and we spoke about Shabbat Tzvi. Uh, uh, this should give you an idea of what to look forward to. When we see them, when we meet and greet the new Mashiach uh, uh, very soon. Any questions? Um, there's still people that follow him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, usually people in Turkey, but not that many. But those people that follow him are they Jews? Because now, if they want, if they would, if they they would need conversion, yeah. they would need a conversion because listen, they lived as Muslim. Who knows if there was an intermarriage and they didn't really keep a lot of the things, so they would still need to do a conversion. Um, as far as my, you know, my knowledge on it. But how, one, how about the ones that converted back then? And then they converted back to Judaism? No, because you cannot convert out of Judaism. Once you're a Jew, always a Jew. You can convert to every single religion, you're dying a Jew. You're born a Jew, you die a Jew. The only time when you're not a Jew is if you're not born a Jew. And that's when you have to convert. Yeah? Mine's off topic. So, question is, uh, what kind of miracles did he actually perform? So it's hard to say because there's a lot of just rumors that people say that he did. Uh, real miracles, that is uh, nothing. There's not... No. None of those things. None of those things that, uh, you know, people like. And again, just like JC, that he has all his followers claim. Did anybody see it that they actually did all these things? I mean, it could be that he had a Kabbalistic, you know, knowledge as well. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked if he did it, but there was nothing here that uh, he claimed he flew also. I mean, and nobody saw him because they weren't worthy of it. So, you know, uh, um, it, it, you don't need that to, to get followers. He got, he got people that were able to, you know, he was a very charismatic person. That was, was that good? If a Jewish woman marries a guy and her kids are technically Jewish but they baptize them, would they stop becoming Jewish after a certain generation? Like no. If so, it, yeah, it would, they would still be a Jew. If this, even though, as long as it's, it's mother by, it has to be from, yeah. you know, from the mother's side. So you still, you still have to be Jewish. And it's very interesting because uh, dealing with converts, um, you know, there's many times when, when I speak to potential converts that they, it turns out that they have Jewish ancestry. And that's why they convert, you know, you know, technically you convert them just to be sure. If you're not sure, you always can't hurt to, to do a conversion. Um, because the last thing that you want, imagine somebody is a non-Jew, goes and, and starts, he thinks that he's Jewish, and he lives his whole life that he's a Jew. Meanwhile, he comes up to heaven and he's not even Jewish. And that he kept Shabbat was a problem. He gets punished for that. So, yeah, a, judge, a non-Jew cannot keep Shabbat. And one question. Uh, did he leave uh, some written works? So, um, Nathan from Gaza did. I don't know if Shabtai Tzvi, he wasn't that, uh, I, don't, I don't know if he did. I think Nathan of Gaza did. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Yeah. It definitely wouldn't, wouldn't have it in any library. No, it would be very, you know, I don't say like, you know, blacklisted. He was the same time with the No, he came before. I think it was Gonville was the 1700s, so. He lived in the, in the mid-1600s. late 1600s. Any other questions? No? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.